Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 82. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, we have a very special guest, the one and only Michael Davis. Before I talk to Michael, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. All right, no more brouhaha. Let's drop everything and get ready for Michael Davis. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 82, my special guest, Mr. Michael Davis. Hi, Michael. Hi, Dan. (laughs) Hey, before we start, I'd like to thank you for the part you played in my career and the career of every comedy juggler who's followed you, because I really do think you set the bar for what a comedy juggler can be, and I really appreciate that and uh, the inspiration you gave me to pursue my career. Okay. um, (laughs) Let me just say, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, what do you feel about the idea that a lot of people's have sort of started with your material to some degree? It was sort of a building, uh-huh. a building place for a lot of acts. Did you resent that? Did you just sort of see it as a natural take on you being first? What were your thoughts about people copying you? <laughs> Somehow I thought you would uh, ask this question. <laughs> it seems to be one of the first questions or things people talk to me about. And a fellow that you and I know um, wanted to write a book about the origins of what he called stock jokes, what we all call stock jokes. And he contacted me. And uh, so there's a lot of it's a big thought, Mm -hmm. the idea of being the originator of certain jokes, you know, ways of phrasing things, uh, ways of organizing things, specific jokes that I created. And I remember creating them on the street or in theaters for television shows and uh, yeah there was some resentment certainly for people who kind of made a living and ended up competing with me in the business and with stuff that i created but let's go back to the beginning because you know everybody starts somewhere and i was not the first comedy juggler i ever saw Let's talk about your upbringing and uh, if your parents were in show business and how you discovered juggling and who were your inspirations? Yeah, well, I was born in San Francisco and uh, my, my parents were very young. We kind of all grew up together. My mom was 18. My dad was 20, 21 when, when I was born in San Francisco. And we were just kind of normal people, you know, kind of poor. My dad drove a bread truck and sold shoes. And my mom didn't work at first. And then she was a secretary. And my dad, very intelligent man, um, very smart, very well, well thought. He eventually went to college and became an English teacher. So when I was growing up, he was going to night school and working in the day to support us. My mom, also very intelligent. She's now very, very political in her thoughts. Anyway, these were smart people, a lot of discussions, and I always enjoyed making the family laugh. I have a brother and a sister. So it didn't matter what family gathering. My favorite thing was to make people laugh. I got a good kick out of that. And I guess I'm funny. You know, I guess that's been proved over the years. Was that sort of your role in the family, to be the funny one? Or did you just sort of take it upon yourself? I mean, you know, we were all funny, but... (laughs) I guess I tried harder or I made more jokes or whatever. I got more in trouble for it. You know, I do things that wouldn't irritate my dad that I thought were funny. Kind of, that's what he said. I don't want to go into all this esoteric thing. <laughs> but anyway, so we were in San Francisco. We moved to San Mateo. We moved back to San Francisco. My dad got a high school teaching job in Susanville. Moved up there in the country. So I was a country boy for a couple of years. My mom didn't like it. We moved back to Danville. And that's where I went to high school. I had an interest 
in writing and reading. I, I read a lot. I was interested in writing. And in Danville, uh, the high school was Monta Vista, and it was a very, very interesting experimental public high school. Started in 1966, I guess. Anyway, they just started with one class, and that was just freshmen. I was ended up being the third class, juniors. When they had juniors and I was a freshman, they had sophomores and juniors. And so there was a real camaraderie in the school because there wasn't any senior traditions and things like that. And they also hired a lot of interesting teachers who created a lot of freedom in the school to do drama performances and writing and whatever, science experiments. They, they had a lot of creativity, but I gravitated towards the performing and the writing. So I started off my first performance of getting left with things that I wrote was writing poetry. I was very enthusiastic about writing poetry in high school. And um, the teacher that we had was a really, she was a character. She was uh, from Berkeley. She was maybe late fifties, a small little Jewish woman who encouraged us to write poetry. And she organized a reading of poetry in Berkeley at uh, Shakespeare's bookstore, where we got up on top of a table and sat in a chair and read our poetry to people who happened to be in the bookstore. <laughs> and we gathered a crowd of maybe like 25 people. And we were all these kids from suburbia. And I read my poetry and people laughed. And then I was like, okay, this, this is continuing on, this making people laugh thing. And did you think about your life in show business in high school? Was that your plan to have a career in show business at that time? Well, I don't know. This was like 1969, so 1970. So a career in quote unquote show <laughs> business right. was, wasn't something that we thought about. We thought about basically being hippies, you know, not being part of business society. Uh, you know, I just intended to be poor. That was my plan. And to do whatever I wanted to do, whether it was write or act or whatever. I didn't plan to get a job, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be a biologist. That was not my plan. I was also doing acting and we were, and, and also there was creativity in the acting of that school. At that school, there was improvisation. Uh, which was new at the time. I mean, it wasn't you know brand new, but as far as being in high schools, yeah, it was new. And my friend and I, who was very influential with me, his name is Randy Dunnigan, and now he's a therapist and he lives in New York City. He enabled me a lot to do things because I was a little bit shy. And we went from our theater class over to San Francisco. during When we were in high school, we'd go on the weekends and we would participate in improvisation at a place on Powell Street called Improv Incorporated. This was really where I started in performing. So I performed the poetry. I performed in high school in the plays. I got laughs. Pretty much every time I performed, I got laughs. So I was 17, and we were finding a way to get to San Francisco, and on Saturday afternoons, taking a class for $5 with 40 other people, varying age ranges up to older people. I mean, older was 40. Um, 35 maybe. And the lady who directed had been involved with the wing of the committee. So there was a you know, there was a linear history from the committee to this group called Improv Incorporated. She was very interesting too. So, you know, I had the luck of being involved very early on with these characters who were very creative people. Now her idea about improv was not that it should be a comedy, but that it should be almost a therapy. Her influence was don't go for the laugh 
which is you no know, not uncommon now, but it was then. We didn't think of improv in terms of that. And if you repeated something, it wasn't appreciated, you know, because we're not there to create sketch material. It was an exploration. And people would say, well, I'm not interesting. And she would say, well, you're far more detailed, complete, and formed than any character that's ever been written. So that was a big influence on me to just be myself. Interesting. Was it sort of a yes and culture? Did they teach that system or was it something different than like the second city would do? Uh, yeah, definitely was yes and. and But yes and was not the uh, dogma as much. It wasn't written in stone like it is now. Right. It was more an exploration of you as a person or you as a performer, if I'm getting it right. I would say that that improv, that improv was pre-Yes And. I mean, Yes And, now it's gospel. But then we didn't know how to express it. But one thing that we did in that group was the Herald. And I believe that we were the only people regularly doing the Herald at that time. Can you explain what that is? That's a type of improv, correct? The Herald? Can you explain what that is? Yeah. It's a form of improv. It's long-form improv that improv people will be very familiar with. I ended up being, just to kind of jump ahead, so I mm-hmm. graduated high school actually early, and I took a big trip across the country when I was 17. Yeah, I wasn't even 18 yet. And I got back to San Francisco, and I moved out of my house, and I found a place to live. That's another long story, but it was in Hunter's Point down by Candlestick Park. I joined the improv group because it was also a performing group. So I was at 18, I was doing shows. And so I got good enough to be in the group. And I guess I was the youngest person. Some other people that ended up being comedians were in that group. Jim Samuels, who ended up winning the San Francisco comedy competition. He died very young, but he was in the group. Another guy named John Pappas, he went to L.A. He became a writer. He became a comedian. He were on the Merv Griffin show or Mike Douglas or whatever with a guy named Jim Dieterich. Some other people went on. And, you know, other people, another friend of mine, Carl York, he ended up being in Hollywood working for a producer. We were all very young. And it was a San Francisco thing. So I was living in San Francisco, doing that, and doing odd jobs, basically, to support myself. So what was your question? <laughs> well, let's, let's just keep moving forward. When did the idea of going uh, to Circus or Clown College come to you? And how did you find out about that? This is an interesting story. So the friend of mine from high school, Randy Dunnigan, my enabler, my best friend. <laughs> okay. We moved in to a house on Holloway Street in San Francisco. And my dad owned the house. So I rented it from him. Now, this is the way I, I kind of have gotten through life was I rented the house and it was super cheap because I know my dad bought the house for like $70,000 or something. It was a three bedroom house on Holloway Street near City College and three bedrooms and a garden shed with single walls, just, you know, pieces of wood making a room. So what I did was I rented out the three bedroom of the house and I lived in a garden shed so I didn't pay any rent this was my plan of being poor (laughs) okay sounds like a good start it sounds like you're good at it so far yeah so I'm like this bohemian I don't have to pay rent and so I can do the improv I think I'm going to sit and write what I think I'm going to do but what I discovered is I'm way too social I'm not good at sitting in a room by myself especially one that doesn't have heat in San Francisco. Writing, I just couldn't do it. I liked being in the improv. 
I like being around people. We were young people in San Francisco, so there was stuff going on. It was the early 70s, the 1972. And I imagine that improv wasn't paying the big bucks at that time? Improv was, I think, $5 a show is okay. what we got. Almost double digits, okay. One time we got $20 to go over to Berkeley as a freight and salvage, and we got $20. That was important, that $20. Yeah. It was a big deal that we all traveled over there together and did this real show for another place that wasn't in our theater. We had a good theater on, on Powell Street. It was pretty amazing. I'm living in this house and I'm not going to college, right? My friend Randy is going to college and he's going to state college, San Francisco State College. I don't know what I was doing during the day, but he would come home from college and he was taking a class in clowning in the theater department because he was very interested in theater. He had been a director in high school and he was also an actor. So he would come home from the clown class. And at this time, I had no circus experience whatsoever. I was only interested in poetry and improvisation and reading. Circus was not part of it. So he would come home from the clown class and he'd say, well, this is what we were working on and do some, some acrobatic thing. And I'm like, well, I, you know, I, anything you can do, I can do better because I'm just better at that than you are. It was that kind of relationship. He was there. So one day he came home and you know, he said, well, we learned to juggle. I'm like, okay, um, let me see that. I can do that. So I started doing, learning to juggle. And then this friend, Carl York, who was in the improv, he could juggle. So he came over and he said, well, I can do this and I can do this. And I said, okay. He'd been juggling for whatever month. And then he came back a week later and I could do everything better than he could do it. So I just picked it up kind of naturally. I have a theory in life that people like to do what they do well. So because I was better at it, I like doing it. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I like doing it. I was juggling. You know how you get into that the first time you juggle and the first time you can do it and the first time you know, you're better than everyone else. And it's good feeling. So I was, I was practicing and, you know, he kept coming back with these clown things and I could do everything. Finally, my friend Randy said, well, why don't you come down to the class and meet the teacher? So I came down to meet the teacher and the teacher saw me and that I had the body to do this and the juggling and blah. And he said, look, why don't you just stay in the class, Mike? Hmm. And I was like, okay. So I was not a student, but he just said, you stay in the class and you take the class. So I did. We ended up doing a production of Hamlet as clowns. Anyway, my friend was Hamlet. Of course, he always got the part. So uh, we decided that we would be street performers. Was that a thing at that time? Were there already people out there that you saw? How'd you know about street performing? Robert Shield, he was the famous one. Toad the Mime, who ended up being a real good friend of mine. And Ray Jason, who I would say was the earliest real performing juggler on the street that I can remember, Ray Jason. He called himself the original San Francisco street performer, so he probably was the first. Yeah, So, but Shields was, of course, the most famous by far, Robert Shields at Union Square. Was he partnered up with uh, Yarnell yet, or just he was by himself? No, by himself, by himself. But there were some other people trying it, and so we thought, well, we would try it. Again, I'm poor. I have no money. <laughs> you had that 20 bucks, though. Yeah. Me, my friend, and a girl were going to do this three-person juggling act. We got a gig, and I, I can't remember where we did the street performing. I really can't remember. I think we tried it down at the wharf, and it wasn't working too well. But we got an actual gig. I think it was at Stanford at a fair, a Mayfair, and we were kind of clowns that we just made up who we were. We had only the training from this one class, and we made these little costumes. And I thought at the May Day Fair, it would be very funny to get entangled in the Maypole. 
So it was this huge maypole, everybody dancing around. I'm the clown, and I dance in the middle, and they start, you know, I'm getting entangled, and there's these cloth ribbons coming down. And it goes on for about three minutes until I realize I'm going to get strangled and killed by this <laughs> freaking maple ribbon. Right. And I had to totally break character, stop being the clown, <laughs> and say, stop, everybody. Save no, me. Oh, fine. They got okay. this really disappointed, disappointed, because they thought it was going to be really funny. We're going to wrap up the clown. <laughs> And just, I had to stop everybody and just, you know, like completely break character and say, everybody stop. You've got to go backwards and unwrap me out of this thing. Yeah, dying is not that funny. That's, that's really dying a comedy, yeah. Reluctantly unwrapped me and I slunk away. <laughs> I can just, it's so funny. I can remember that just like it's yesterday. But we got our, again, maybe we all got our 20 bucks. I think we got $100 for that show because that was big. Anyway, I'm involved in this idea now of being a clown. It's somehow intriguing me. And how I was supporting myself is that I remember now. In the summers, I would go up to Mount Rainier and be a waiter at the Paradise Inn. And then I'd keep my money and I'd come back. And that's how I lived, which was like I lived on $1,500 a year or something like that. My mother had sent me a clipping because she knew I was interested in this clowning about Ringling Brothers having an audition in the Bay Area. So I thought, oh, okay. Well, I had never seen a circus and I had no money and I wanted to see the circus, but I couldn't buy a ticket. So I thought, oh, if I go to the audition, I bet somehow I'll get to see the circus. That was my plan. Oh, get a free ticket. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I get a free ticket. I hang around after the audition. Somehow I would maneuver my way in to actually see a circus because I, I had never seen one. And of course, that's a common place for clowns. But my parents never took us to the circus. And they only take about seven people out of 3,500. So I'm sure you didn't think your odds were very good. I didn't think about that. Mm, I wasn't okay. interested in that. I just wanted to see the circus for free. Okay. What happened was I went to the audition and there was, I don't know, 30 people there, all different kind of people. But the weirdest thing is, one of my good friends from high school was there and I was shocked because I didn't know that he was interested in this. But again, because I was a little bit shy or quiet, I would say I wasn't uh, kind of like my character on stage. If you extrapolate that character being dry, quiet, ironic, sardonic, whatever, into a person, I'm not that way as much now, but I was then. We were, we're standing around doing the quote unquote audition of, he's, you know, there's a man there, Bill Valentine. He's the dean of clown college. There's a boss clown named Frosty Little, and we're all looking around. I'm hanging out with my friend who happens to be six six, and I was short. We participated in the morning for a couple hours, and then they said, okay, now we want you to go away, and we want you to come back with a routine. Well, naturally, I teamed up with my buddy, who's six six, and I'm short, and we figured out something where he was slapping me, or I was slapping him, or and I was juggling, blah, blah, blah. We kind of stood out, but I don't know that I would have stood out if it wasn't for my friend. I got a good feeling from the audition. From, I got a good vibe from Bill Ballantyne. We, you fill out a written application, and it was very odd. Like, when was the last time you cried, and can you handle cramped spaces? I got the letter back, and it said, you know, you've been accepted. And yeah, they only took 50 people. And yeah, I don't know how many applied, seriously, but right. I got in. And my friend got in, too. We both got in. And I, I swear it's because we both ended up at the audition. I had 
$500 to my name. And because of that $500, I was able to buy a ticket to Florida and pay for my food. That, that's all I had to pay for because they gave us a motel room and, and et cetera. And I went to the Clown College audition with my buddy. And what was your experience in Clown College? Were you immediately taken with it or was there things about it? like the makeup or something that you didn't like? The Clown College, I had never flown in a plane before. Like I say, poor people, we didn't travel in planes. And go to fly to, I guess, Sarasota and go down to Venice, Florida and go to the circus grounds, the winter quarters for Ringling Brothers Circus. This is all new to me. Now there's 50 people, all different kind of people. And we get into this big building that has, you know, like a circus ring in it and some bleachers and it's hot. Then Frosty, he's there. He's the... Uh, kind of like a drill start and a really mild drill sergeant in a way about how he talks to you and uh, all these classes we're going to do. And again, it's like going to the San Francisco State clown class. I could do everything. I was just better at it. I could do the acrobatics. I could, of course, do the juggling. I was funny. I did my own makeup. We had makeup. And the only thing I didn't do well at all was costume because you're supposed to make a costume and I just completely failed on that. What's also interesting is another person that was accepted into the college was Penn Gillette. So he was in the class and some other people that went on to do very interesting things were in the class. But of course, Penn was got the most famous of anybody. Did he stand out at that time? Did you sort of notice his talent or were you surprised that he became uh, the most famous one? I would not surprise. Um, he was more specialized, I would say. In, he's also 6'6". So my friend was 6'6", and Penn was 6'6". So they, you know, they stand out ordinarily. Penn mainly focused on juggling. He didn't do magic at the time. He was the best juggler. He could juggle five clubs. I could only do five balls. I was like the third best juggler. But yeah, he was way better than me. But me and the, the second best juggler, a guy named John McHugh, lives in South Carolina, North or South Carolina. Very interesting guy. And Penn Gillette did a juggling act together. So there's a bit of trivia for you. I wouldn't say that we were buddies. That's all I really remember about my experience with Penn was just doing the juggling and that he was a good juggler and I was lucky to be in juggling with him. You know, that's the way I felt. But he couldn't do acrobatics. He didn't have great makeup. He wasn't that funny because he's so dry. He's so specific that it didn't really work for the clowning that much. He wasn't very clowny. <laughs> I can see that, yeah. My buddy, his name was Phil Crowder, he ended up being the ringmaster at one point for Big Apple Circus. He was funnier, and he could do acrobatics, and we did an acrobatic gag together that was pretty good. Now, the other person that I have to mention who was in the class was Greg Dean, and so that's how I met Greg Dean. He was from the Death Zone, and that was a funny story, too, because... When I went to get on the plane from, I think it was Oakland, to fly to Florida to go to the college, I'm standing in the waiting lobby at the gate, and I'm just standing there, not saying anything, not doing anything. And a guy walks up to me and he says, you're going to clown college, aren't you? Okay. Was that, was <laughs> that, that Greg? Was Greg yeah. <laughs> that was Greg Dean. He said, he said, I knew there was someone else going on this plane, and I knew it was you. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? He spotted your clowniness. I had hair, I had curly hair. So we ended up flying down there. Now, Greg, he wanted attention. So he was the opposite of me. So he always wanted attention. And he got a lot of attention by telling jokes. And I never told a joke at that point in my life, I don't think. 
but he would tell these long story jokes. Now I'm thinking Greg was in that juggling routine too, because Greg was a pretty good juggler. I can't remember. And he became the obscene juggler later on at Renaissance Fair. So he had his own juggling act later on, Greg Dean. So he was pretty good. Well, Greg became a very well-known juggler as the obscene juggler yep. in the 80s in the Southern Renaissance Fair. And well, anyway, to get to the story, is <laughs> okay. at the time, I wasn't fond of Greg because he would just wanted too much attention. And I was like, who is this dude? He's always telling me a joke. And I have to listen to this long joke. And I just want to kind of hang out with the guy that I knew or whatever. And But Greg would kind of always come around and want to be in it because we were all working on gags to do a show at the end of the eight weeks to see if we could get a job. Because the, the owner of the circus, Irvin Feld, would come and watch the show and then decide if you got a job. Originally, I wasn't that interested, but I'm just competitive. So when I went to the audition, and I ended up did end up seeing the circus for free, uh, I wasn't that interested in getting a job. But once I was competing, because there's all the other people, then I did want to get a job. Then I, I wasn't that interested when I went to the college. I thought, oh, well, I'll get some education. But then I started competing. I say, I do want to get a job. I want to succeed. And Greg, he wanted to succeed too. Now, my friend, Phil, wasn't that interested in doing everything that needed to be done to get a job. He was interested, but one time they sat us all down and they said, okay, here's how you answer questions at an interview. And you say this and you say that. And my friend Phil was like, nah, I'm not going to participate in this. I think that pretty much nixed him getting a job. He didn't get a job. Right. Now, Penn Gillette, he didn't get offered a job. I got offered a job and Greg got offered a job. And the job they're offering is like 150 bucks a week or something. And you, It was exactly $150 a week for 13 shows and the shows are three and a half hours long that was the job you also had to join the union and i know why they asked that uh, cramped question too because the living conditions you had to be comfortable in a very cramped space okay i'm going to get to that in a second okay okay we do the show i think out of the 15 people 17 people got jobs now one of the reasons that Phil or Penn might not have gotten jobs was because I was going in to replace a clown who had quit and I fit his costume. (laughs) So (laughs) that may have been why I got a job. Okay. There was a clown who was six, seven Richard Mann, and he was really amazing, but he didn't quit. And I think that maybe that's why the tall people didn't get jobs because they didn't want to make costumes for them. Because everybody was shocked when Phil Crowder, my friend, didn't get a job because he could do everything. He could juggle. He was just good at it. Penn was just a little less bounty. Right. People were surprised he didn't get a job, but they weren't as shocked. I think everybody expected that I would get a job, that Greg would get a job. John McHugh got a job. There's two shows, the Blue Show and the Red Show. The Red Show was where we were replacing people. Greg and I and John went to the Red Show. So now in clown college, I'm kind of standoffish from Greg. But once we go to the show, I'm like, Greg, you're my friend now because I know you. <laughs> you know? So we go into this 26 clowns and we're living on a train. And what was interesting though, in between the, the clown college and, the, and Ringling Brothers, there was a, a teacher of acrobatics, Victor Guyona. Now, if you know trapeze artists, you know the name Guyona because the Guyona family were the best. Very famous in circus world, yeah. Tito Guyona was the best trapeze artist. Victor was teaching us at Clown College, and he picked out my friend Phil and me because we did this gag, this acrobatic gag on a table. 
And he said, you boys want to go to uh, Jamaica? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, you boys, you boys want to go to Jamaica? <laughs> and I, I were like, okay, because, you know, it was $200 a week to go to Jamaica. <laughs> and, right. Uh, so in between clown college, the two of us, and we were the only two he picked, went to Jamaica and were clowns in a circus in Jamaica. And that was a whole nother story because I'd never been out of the country. I don't even know if I had a passport. I don't know how I got there. We ended up in Jamaica in this tent show. It's like not Ringling Brothers. This is old fashioned tent show with circus artists who travel around the world doing these tent shows. And there was a really good old clown in the show. One of the best clowns I've ever seen still named Rudy Dockey. And he was funny. He played the balloon. He made it the best playing the b balloon routine that I've ever seen. And I always wanted to copy that. Speaking of copying. Did he let air out slowly and squeeze it like that kind of thing or? Yeah, squeeze the balloon and, and play Oh Solo Mio. Mm. But the, the gag was he'd play the violin first. The ringmaster would steal his violin <laughs> Right. Tell him not to play the violin, and then he played the balloon with classic clowning. I was much more interested in clowning than juggling. It's just that juggling was kind of my specialty. So we ended up doing two weeks in Jamaica, and, and long story. But anyway, I get back, and I go to the circus, and now, now I'm back with Greg. And John and Greg and I did a juggling routine together. We ended up doing the acrobatic routine that Phil and I had done. So now, I'm doing a lot in the circus because I'm doing the thing with Greg. I'm doing the juggling with John. I'm doing all the other things they asked me to do. And again, I get picked by Lou Jacobs, who's a famous circus clown, Lou Jacobs, master clown. And he asked me to do something with him. So I'm, I'm getting oh. the feeling like, okay, I'm succeeding at this. People are noticing me. And then P.O. Nock was a famous Swiss wirewalking clown. And this is one of my fond memories is that he didn't talk to us. He didn't, he, he didn't associate with us clowns. But one day he came up to Greg and me and he says, you guys work good. <laughs> That's basically the only thing he ever said to me for the year. Because the Knox family was very famous, too. They, they became a very, the nerveless Knox. Yep. Historically famous Swiss circus family doing daredevil things. It was a great circus. It was uh, Gunther Gable Williams. It was famous, famous juggler Picasso. Mm -hmm. El Gran Picasso, yeah. And that's, of course, a big influence because that's where I saw ping pong ball spitting. And he was the man of ping pong ball spitting. He spit five balls in the ring. He was amazing. He captured 20,000 people in the arena with ping pong ball spitting. And then he, he would do the, the frisbees. He was an amazing showman. I learned a lot watching him. In fact, when I started, I parodied him. Oh, yeah, I saw him in Paris. He really he knew how to build it up. He really... He tried and tried and it got so exciting because he, he wasn't afraid to miss a few times. True. I don't, He never missed on purpose. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I remember him missing a lot. It was kind of built into the app. Right, right. He would build it up. I think it, it, I never saw him do it perfectly, but uh, it didn't matter. Tremendous personality. When I do the thing about throwing a ball in the air and catching it with just one hand and say style, <laughs> that's a parody of Picasso. Funny. And a parody of that circus performing, of course. Sure, the pose at the end. Yeah, the pose. Yeah, so I was lucky to be in an incredible circus there. Everybody was talented there. It was still one of the best circuses I've ever seen. Wolfgang Holtzmeier did Lions, Theo Nock, and Lou Jacobs, another great clown named Dan Chapman. I'm amazed I can remember these names. Great uh, teeterboard, incredible teeterboard. They did a five-man high, straight up. No two, three, two, one, one, one just straight up. 
I wow. never, hardly ever, I don't know that I've ever seen it like as good as they did it. Sounds dangerous. Was there like a, a safety wire or just five people, uh, five high with no nothing? Wire. That's wow. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like a great show. Yeah. I actually, the person I have to mention, Elvin Bale, incredible daredevil. He did trap bees, single trap, forward heel catch, diving oh. out, catching the, the trap with his heel. He had a mechanism, but it was incredibly small. But I mean, this was three shows on Saturday. He dives out into the middle of nowhere and catches the trapeze with the back of his heel without a net, right? without a wire. Insane. Insane. Yeah, no one's doing that now. Yeah. Uh, well, he eventually, you know, had an accident. And, oh. and of course, he did the uh, motorcycle on a wire. Greg and I are hanging out doing the circus. We're supposed to get a day off. We're in. A, we have to join a union for another $30 a week out of our $150. We're taking home $90 a week. And just to let you know, I saved $500 that year. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> we had food, right? So you just you had nothing to spend it on, I guess. No, no, no. We didn't get food. No food? Oh. No. Were you doing the top ramen thing? How did you survive on, on that amount of money? I just did. So I was taking home at first $90 a week. I had to pay $10 a week to live on their train. Oh, they charged you to live on the train? I had to pay. Oh, okay. They charged me to live on the passing train, and uh, I had to pay 50 cents to ride their bus from their train to their show each way. Sounds like you're an indentured <laughs> servant a little bit, like a, like from the old days. Yeah. And we had to pay for our own makeup, had to pay for our own costumes that weren't costumes from the show, which we had to have. It was insane. It was insane. Right. I don't know how I saved $500, but I did. I, I just had this thing. I had to get that $500. You know, I had to have $500 at all times because I had no other money. We were supposed to get a day off, and the clowns were all, We weren't getting a day off. Clowns all said, hey, we're supposed to get a day off. And we had a meeting, and they said, okay, you get a day off. And the end of the year, they fired us all. Hmm. They fired 20 clowns. Right, because they wanted a day off. Yeah, because we were all union. We all kind of stuck together, and we all got fired. Right. So at the end of that, we're fired. And then, of course, Victor comes around and says, you boys want to go in a circus. <laughs> so he picked Greg and me right. to go to another circus. And he offered us a job. And it was $200 a week. So we took the job because we had no place, other thing to do. There was another fellow who got a job. His name was Toby Ballantyne, and he was the son of Bill Ballantyne, who was the dean of Clown College. And yeah, it was interesting because Toby and I didn't get along too well. You know, it's, this is ancient history. So we go on this small, what's called a mud show. It didn't even have a tent. Oh. It just had a backdrop. Right. <laughs> so you're doing like parking lots or, or parks and things like that and just open spaces? Yeah. Fairgrounds. You know, <laughs> fairgrounds and, and they... and. I don't remember. I don't think we had our own bleachers. I don't remember. Maybe we did. So I'm doing that, and I'm driving. Now I have to drive, and I'm getting $200 a week. So I'm still not, And I'm selling coloring books but to basically make a living in between the show. I'm, we're, Greg and I are going around. We go to Canada. We go around. Long. I can't tell the whole story right no. now. But it was, <laughs> we got a lot to cover still, too. We're still in cloud. We're still in the clowning. One funny thing that happened was one of our big shows was in San Francisco. So we worked our way, started in uh, New Mexico, had to drive down to New Mexico. 
travel up to Canada, work our way back to San Francisco. We're at the Civic Center. So it's one of our biggest show. And I'm really excited because I can sell a lot of coloring books. <laughs> and you're talking about the magic coloring book. It's a gimmick that they sell at circuses, that they color it and it disappears and then reappears the colors, right? When you say coloring no, book? No, no. This is a 50-cent coloring oh. book that you sell. To. <laughs> okay. It's like the clown comes out and he sells, and I get a quarter if I sell a coloring oh, I gotcha. book. A real coloring so book. So I'm okay. selling these coloring books. And I'm, I'm just like hustling through the, through the whole auditorium trying to sell 100 coloring books. And this guy walks up to me. I'm, I got these color. I can see it. I got this coloring book in my hand and I'm holding it up. And this guy walks up to me and he says, kind of mumbles, kind of quiet. And he says, uh, I just want to say, uh, I just want to say, uh, I think you're a really good clown. <laughs> that happened to be Bill Irwin. Oh. So I said, okay, well, <laughs> that's weird. That's not something that people say to me very often. But I was. I, I mean, again, I'm succeeding as a clown. We're better than average clowns, for sure. Right. At the end of the year, Patty Gaddy, it was the Gaddy Charles Circus, she really likes us for $200 a week. Why shouldn't she? And we still got a lot of coloring books, too. And she says, I want you two boys to stay with the circus. Greg and I said, well, we would, but we kind of want to be the only two clowns. We just want to do all the clowning and be the star clowns. And she said, well, I, I would like that, except when I sell my circus, I have to say I have five clowns mm. or else they think I'm not a big show. Right. So I said, OK, well, that's it. We're quitting. So we left. And we went to San Francisco and that was like 75 or 76. So a lot happened. <laughs> when did you branch out on your own? Because uh, obviously you didn't stay with the team. We go to San Francisco, and it's so interesting to think back of all of the connections and the coincidences. So Greg and I ask at Ghirardelli Square if we can do street shows, and they say yes. And you can come on this day, it's Saturday, beautiful May, I think it was in May or June or something. You can come and you get this time. And we're like in full clown makeup on the street. Hmm. We work out a routine, and so we show up. And then who happens to be there but Robert Shield? And he's there with Lorraine Yarnell. And he says to us, enjoy it. This is our last day on the street. We're not doing oh. this anymore. Robert Shield's last day and my first day. So Greg and I are doing our shows. And we discover that because we're in full clown makeup, everybody just wants to leave their kids oh. and go shop. And we become babysitters. After like two weeks of that, we say, you know what, we better take off our clown makeup and, and we better just be performers. And so Greg and I start working out our act, which we ended up doing at the Renaissance Fair and wherever we could get a gig. We're in San Francisco. He's got his place to live. I'm living with my grandfather at that time in a spare bedroom. So again, I don't have to pay rent, but I contribute a little bit. You know, we were making like $35 a show, a good show, having to split it. But we were getting better and better. We did good at the Renaissance Fair. I was doing, instead of eating an apple, I was eating a tomato. And I would go and buy this crate of huge beefsteak <laughs> tomatoes. And we would say, come see the man-eating tomato. <laughs> that would be our Funny. Pitch. And how many shows a day? Like six or so? How many, how many tomatoes do you have to eat a day? Five, six, seven shows. <laughs> a lot of tomatoes. And we had our, and, I'm eating, and my eyes are totally watering from the acid. <laughs> I'm getting like crusty tomato seeds in my <laughs> hair. <laughs> okay. Pretty picture, okay. But I have to say, Phil, in all this time, one of the biggest laughs was at the very end, throwing up what was left of the tomato <laughs> and catching it in my mouth. You can't do that with the apple. 
but it makes this big splat. And really, the tomato is better. You know? <laughs> Advice from the pros, the tomato is better, everybody. I had never seen anybody juggle and eat a tomato before. Right. So I have to say, I just went and I was, there were apples and there were these huge tomatoes. And I thought, well, I've seen the apple before, but that tomato, I've never seen that. So I'm going to do the tomato. But I had, you know, I was just lucky that I found a place that sold these huge beefsteak tomatoes. And I remember I had to buy like 14 tomatoes by the third day, <laughs> three days. I had to pick it. I kept having to pick out what was the tomato that was going to be the best one for the show. All right. So you're working with Greg at the Renaissance Fairs. Yeah, with Greg. So one day Greg decides he wants to go to L.A. and try to make it, you know, and I'm like, OK, well, go ahead. <laughs> I'm not going to L.A. <laughs> right. I just say, like, Greg, good luck. I wish you the best. Go to L.A. And he did make it. I mean, he became such a successful comedy teacher in L.A. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's been there all this time, and he's never had a job, so there you go. That's the, that's the definition of success right there. There it is. There it is. So I'm in San Francisco. I'm not doing improv anymore, not writing poetry anymore, just doing you know, street performing. And I can't remember what the heck was going on besides that. Hanging out with friends. And oh, I was thinking about, should I keep doing this? Greg left. Should I try to be a carpenter? What should I do? And I tried to be a carpenter. And I was really bad at it. And this goes on for a few months. And I actually moved to Healdsburg. I thought, you know what? I should give this one more try. And I got an offer to perform at the Dickens Fair. So I believe this was 1977. And I don't think I'd ever been to the Dickens Fair. Is that the Christmas Fair that they have at the Cow Palace? Yeah, the Christmas Fair at the Cow Palace. And somebody who had seen me perform from the renaissance fair was connected that was the same company i guess it was because of that because mm. i didn't really know the people and you weren't marketing yourself as a juggler right you were just sort of taking what came your way type of thing well they just said yeah you can street perform you street perform mm. at the renaissance fair you can street perform at the dickens fair and again luckily i got my own little wagon at the ren fair we had a wagon and at the dickens fair i don't know if it was the same wagon but i got this little wagon at the end of a little hallway that could fit about 70 people in the hallway right it was really a good spot what happened was i was getting ready to do this solo show and i didn't know what i was going to do and i remember talking to my dad and i i said he was like well what are you going to do with your life and i said well i'm going to do this gig i'm going to perform at the dickens fair and he looked at me and said well what are you going to do and i said well i'm going to do comedy juggling i guess and he said mike he said like you did with greg and I said, yeah. He said, well, Mike, I, I really don't want to hurt your feelings, but you're not the funny one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Greg is the funny one. Thanks, Dad. You're the straight man. <laughs> well, it was kind of true, like you said, because your character and his character, if you just saw them side by side, you'd say, oh, yeah. he's the straight man. Greg's the funny one. Yeah, exactly. He, and what would happen is every time I wrote a joke, Greg would do it the next show before I got a chance. <laughs> So I go in and I end up going and doing it and it's working great. Somehow now I could get my timing a little bit slower because Greg is always quicker to the punch. Now that was great on the street. I'm not criticizing Greg because he always yeah. kept the crowd going. But he, he was the funny one in that show. And I was kind of the more technical juggler. But once I got my own show, it worked better. So that's really was the start was the Dickens Fair. And... My dad came and he said, yeah, you're good. You're funny. He was shocked. And was your style kind of uh, set from the start? Did you sort of start with that laconic, 
slow kind of dread, deadpan style right from the beginning in your solo act? That style comes from a relationship with the audience. But that's what it is. Not necessarily what I'm doing. It's what they're doing. So I'm just taking my cue from them. And that's I'm going at their timing. And I'm going with their timing to what I'm doing. It's very much that. And so every place is different, but that timing was that timing. But yeah, I mean, it was, it wasn't different. You know, I was never Frank Olivier or, or whoever. Do you feel like the more complex the material, the slower it should be delivered? Like your material is very thoughtful. And I think if you delivered it faster, it wouldn't have been effective. Or as effective, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. To have a meeting of the minds, you have to have the same thought in both minds. And so you have to figure out the words to express the thought or the idea or the comedy or the joke that fits what's in my mind that I can deliver to their mind. Hmm. And I have to allow space for that words to bloom in their head, right? And those, those are my favorite jokes. They have to get it. Like, that's the idea is, I think you said yeah. one time in a workshop that it was like jumping a canyon. That you want to yeah. make it not make it too wide because they can't get it, but if it's too close, it becomes too obvious. Right. Yeah, I do use that metaphor that you're traveling along at a certain speed and it's like going over what I like to think of as like a gazelle leaping and just making the other side. The bigger the gap, the more beautiful the leap, mm. but it can't be too big a gap, and there has to be the correct amount of momentum in the delivery of the thought, the joke. Yeah. So you have to build, and more words can decrease momentum, absolutely. So if you have too many words, it just starts to, like you start to stumble, and you don't have the speed that you need to get that beautiful art of a joke. So, and also, you have to use your face, your body, hmm. your presence right. to continue the momentum across the leap. Because you can look with a raised eyebrow and say to the audience, Keep thinking. This isn't mm. over. <laughs> right. You haven't right. gotten it yet. So keep thinking about it and you'll get it. And through, you can only really figure that out through experience. It's like an experiment. You have to keep doing it until you figure out what works. How much do I have to say? How do I have to hold my head? What do I have to have done before in order to get the laugh that I want to get? And it's not necessarily the biggest laugh. But it's the laugh I want to get. Like, I'm creating that. And I did this for years. I'll do a joke, and I know that only 11% of the audience will laugh, no matter what. Right. But what I enjoy is after the show, them saying, I'm the one who got that joke. Because they dig it that much. They like being part of the 11%. Well, like you say, it's all about the connection with the audience. And I think what you're talking about is you have to sell the joke. Like, it's not just to have a joke. It's the pre presentation, the look, that little... Because you have great facial expressions and it, it's, it doesn't verge on mugging, which you don't want, because that's not natural. But you really know how to sell it just through that little subtle glance, which really, which really was you know, your style. Let's mm -hmm. move ahead a little bit, if you don't mind. How were you discovered for the Broadway Follies? And how did that part of your career start? Well, it all kind of goes in one big linear thing. So from the Dickens Fair, I went to the cannery and became a full-time street performer. Let's just skip ahead to there. Greg's in LA, I'm in San Francisco. Now I'm a full-time street performer. The first year, also performing with Whitney Brown. Again, great 
performer, fantastic comedian. I started as a juggler, so he was a big, big influence on me. Whitney Brown. Hey, Whitney Brown. He's come up a couple times, and his joke, he wants to be the Whitney Brown one day. So I'm watching him. I'm learning a lot from him. He ended up actually only doing a dog act after a while on the street. But anyway, Hokum Jeeves, uh, H.P. Lovecraft, and of course, Bob Hartman, the great puppeteer. So we're all full-time street performers, and we have this world at the cannery. And I end up doing that for three years, and I end up being the solo person at the cannery at night. It's only me every night for three Mm. shows. Right. And at the same time, I'm trying to work my way into indoor shows. I'm thinking about stand-up comedy. I'm going to see a lot of stand-up comedy, you know, and of course, at the time, there was a fame, Robin Williams and Dana Carvey and Mark McCullum was another famous, all these people, Bobcat Goldweight later on, Paula Poundstone later on. But early on, I ended up being in a vaudeville show with Robin where there was 40 people in the cast and 30 people in the audience that we did for like six weeks. Oh. And I'm like, this guy is great. And he was going to L.A. I say, if this guy goes to L.A. and he doesn't make it, I'm never leaving San Francisco. Right. Because this guy is great. I'm watching all these people. It was a, it was a real, again, a great opportunity. And it was like, that doesn't happen all the time. Like a fountain of creativity mm-hmm. and stand-up. And I performed at the Holy City Zoo, famous place, the other cafe. But I, I never really fit in that much because I had too much stuff all the time. It was hard to get on and off the stage. One funny thing at the Holy City Zoo, because I would have to kind of get there early and set myself on the stage. So I set myself on the stage and I did my act and it went well. I was killing. I couldn't have time to get my stuff off the stage, right? It's a yeah. tiny little place. And Robin came up, Robin Williams came <laughs> up after me. Yeah. He was next. He could not, he had to be playing with your stuff, right? I mean, that's his he way. He started playing with my stuff and he did <laughs> yeah. a funnier act just picking up my stuff and improvising with my stuff. My act had been, and I was like, okay, you're good, Robin. You're fantastic. Because I, I loved improv, and he was just amazing. You know, I loved him. He was, he was fantastic. And we never hung out. Later, we did a little bit because we had the same manager. Hung out with Dana Carvey a little bit more. Anyway, it was great to be part of that world. I wanted to be more into stand-up. So I performed in the stand-up comedy competition. So that was what started off with like 40 people. It was pretty intense. I had, you know, transition from the street into the stand-up stage performing. I came in 17th Hmm, the first year. And I said, okay, that wasn't good enough. Again, it's the competition. I said, no, 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 I'm I'm doing better than that. I got better the next year. It's the third year of, of street performing. And I got a lot better. I got a lot stronger. I was doing more indoor shows. And I said, I'm doing this again. And I came in second. And second is kind of the famous spot because that's the same spot that Robin came in and a lot of nice. famous people came in second. Who, who beat you that year? Who, do, who, who came in first? Marsha oh, Warfield. I remember her. Yeah. Yeah. She was funny. Yeah. I did beat Dana Carvey and I did beat A. Whitney Brown and I did beat uh, Michael Winslow. These are people who ended up doing pretty good in showbiz. Yeah, all of them, yeah. Yeah, because I was on that show, it was televised. It, they, they recorded it, and they played it on Showtime. Oh, okay. HBO saw it, and they had me on the Young Comedian show, and Victor Borger was the host. From one of those shows, a guy in New York who was writing a musical saw me, and they wanted a juggler in their musical because it was a vaudeville musical. It was the, the producers, the same people who did the magic show with Doug Henning. Mm. Now they wanted to go from the magic show with Doug Henning to a more of a variety show format. So they were looking for a juggler. Yeah, it sounds like right place, right time for sure. So the juggler they were looking at was Francis Brune. 
Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> Not much of a joke teller, that Francis Brune, but uh, obviously... No. <laughs> no. <laughs> One of the greatest of all time. That's the incredible comedy of it and the span of generations. And of course, Francis is, you know, a legend and he's yeah. fantastic. such a nice man and nothing but laudable things to about, say about Francis. But they somehow decided that he wasn't right for the show. And then they were going to look at me and they heard about me. And the writer was saying, well, you ought to look at this other comedian guy. They said, OK, we should. And I got a call and they said, well, we're going to look for acts and we're going to L.A. And then we're going to go to San Francisco and we're going to look at your act. And I was all excited. I said, OK, great. Fantastic. I get a call. and They say, well, you know what? We never made it to San Francisco. Sorry. Oh. And I'm like, okay, well, that's the way it goes. I'm back. You know, I've got my thing. I've got more than $500 now. You're <laughs> I've got, I've got $17,000 now because I saved $17,000 performing on the street uh, in one year. I was like, okay, well, I got a job juggling apples and talking about apples hmm. for the Apple Association. And it was an advertising job. And they were paying me $500. I think Bobby Sandler did that too, right? So that was a thing at one point that you that the Apple industry wanted jugglers to promote apples. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe they just said, well, we'll do it again with this guy. They flew me to New York. Oh. And I'm like, okay, well, that guy was in New York. I should call up that guy. So they were paying me $500 a day and I had to go on talk shows or whatever and do a little spiel about apples and, and juggle and eat an apple. And they liked me. I was doing well. They were very happy. I said, but I'm going to call up that show. I, mean, I don't know if they've booked anybody yet. So I called up the show and they say, okay, we do want to see you tomorrow at one o'clock at the Palace Theater, which is, of course, the mecca of vaudeville. And I was like, wow, I'm going to at least perform on the stage of the Palace Theater, if nothing else. So I call up the people I'm working for, the Apple people, which was an ad company. And I said, and I looked at my schedule. And I said, well, we don't have anything scheduled at one o'clock tomorrow. And I said, I have to do an audition. And she said, well, you know what? We're paying you by the day. If we book something, you have to go do it. Uh, so I don't think you should schedule an audition. Uh -huh. I said, well, I said, you know what? I think I'll just quit your job. <laughs> I just quit. <laughs> right. Well, that wasn't very flexible of her. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to do the audition. <laughs> He said, no, 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 no. That's okay. That's okay. We don't have anything. Fine. That's fine. Oh, good. Okay. Right. <laughs> I said, okay, a good. hardball. I'll keep doing your gig, and I'm going to do the audition. So I go to the audition with all my stuff, and I go on the, through the stage door onto the stage of the Palace Theater. There's one light on the stage on a lamp, you know, on a stand, because it's a union thing. You can't turn the lights on. So you can only perform with just a stage lamp. So I'm, I set my stuff up, and there's three people in the audience and the weird thing is they don't sit together so there's like two producers down front and then there's this guy on the stage left audience right yeah and he's sitting back a few rows and i'm doing my show and of course it's just these three men i've got my show memorized i know when to stop i know when to pause i know when to raise my eyebrow because i've been doing this and they the two guys in the front laugh a little bit they're starting to i get a good vibe but the guy on the left i'm hearing this sound and the sound is like this, like, right. You know what? This guy never laughs. Right. I'm doing he's, good. He's out of, he's out of practice. <laughs> I must be doing really good because this guy never laughs. I can tell. And he's making this weird sound. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And it turns out that he was the guy who puts up the money. Mm. <laughs>
Okay, he's the important one. So I leave, and I'm like, you know what? I think I did pretty good. And I get a call later and say, yeah, you got the job. So you're going to be in this Broadway show, Broadway Follies. And were, were Shields and Yarnell the, the star of that show, or were they involved in that too? I, I forget. They were the stars. Mm, right, right. It was the Shields and Yarnell show. And then they had other vaudeville acts from ancient, like Tessie O'Shea, if you look her up. She performed in the 40s, I think. So this was like 1980. That was my first Broadway show. And how did that lead into uh, Sugar Babies? We're putting together the show. I had rented a, an apartment in Greenwich Village. So I'm living there, and it was like three weeks rehearsal. And I'd go to the show, and they would be bustling around trying to put this show together. Everyone was completely busy, and I'm there just to do my thing. Like I know what I'm going to do. Right. And they added something to my act, which actually was really funny. They added a dog. Oh. And it was a dog from a commercial. And the, the dog was famous for biting someone's leg. <laughs> it was a like a commercial for dairy called Breakstone. Mm. And so it was Breakstone Dog. And they said, well, we're going to add this dog in. And at the end of your routine, the dog's going to chase you off the stage and try to bite your leg. <laughs> that is funny. I like that. Yeah, okay. I see that. <laughs> was really funny they had me interstitially so they had me like four times four or five mm. times what happened was after the first time and the dog bit my leg like the second time i come on and i'm doing it but the whole time i'm glancing stage <laughs> left for the dog yeah <laughs> for the dog right i was just good at playing that kind of moment because i have this really deadpan and i'm just like you can just you can just imagine me doing it. Yeah, for sure. I look back at the audience and I'm like, you know what I'm thinking? And I'm thinking, <laughs> when's this dog coming? The show for me absolutely killed. Mm, yeah, your spot, your part of it. The audience fell in love with me. Of all the shows, I was absolutely the star of that show. Right, you stole the show. Yeah. I stole the show completely. And Shields and Arnell had a hard time. They were not getting along. They were not making their bits work. The show was chaos. And the director was a nice man, Donald Driver. And one day, I, he, hard, he was trying to do everything, and he never talked to me. And I'm thinking I'm going to get go to New York, and I'm going to get directed. You know, I'm gonna, yeah. like, now I'm going to get directed. I'm gonna, like, they're going to know what to say and, and fix everything. And I go and I say, Donald, do you ever want to tell me what to do? And he says, you're the part that's working. You're the least <laughs> of my problems. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> Which is nice because you had your spot. You did it. And... So the show's going on and I have a contract supposedly for a year. And I'm doing the show and I'm, I'm having a great time. And my friend, Phil, remember Phil? The tall one, the six foot six one. Yeah who was my friend from high school, from Danville. He's living in New York City at the time. And my friend Carl, who was in the improv group, yeah, he was living in New York City. Okay. They both and, moved to New York City. And we know how much you love cheap rent, so did you end up living with one of them? No, I, I didn't. <laughs> I thought that was a theme that was running through the, the, the where you're yeah, living. They end up coming to the show. They say, Mike, and I'm talking about how I'm going to be in the show for a year and I'm going to you know, be in New York and blah, blah, blah. And they say, Mike, we hate to tell you this, but the show's no good. <laughs> right, right. The show's not, you're the only good thing in the show. The yeah. show's not going to make it. Right. It's not working. It's going to close. And I'm like, really? 
that's bad news. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want. I don't want the show to close. I'm having a great time. It's a stinker, Michael. <laughs> yeah, and they say no, and I'm desperate. And I'm thinking, what the hell? My friend Phil and I sit up one night and we devise a whole nother show. And I go into the producer. It was Edgar Lansbury, right? And he's the brother of Angela Lansbury. Mm. Joseph Baru. And so there were these producers who had done the magic show. They'd done the Broadway. They were like legitimate Broadway producers. And they had an office. And I go into the office with my friend Phil and I say, look, I want to have a meeting with you. And they're like, sure. And so they like me because I'm the one working right. that's working. And they're like, okay. So I sit in front of these two men and I say, look, I really don't know how to say this but your show is going to close. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't think that took them by surprise, probably. It took them by surprise that they that I would say that. Right. Believe me. No, they, they didn't think the show was... No, they did right, not right. think the show was But for was you to say close. it was pretty ballsy, right? They didn't have the same opinion. Oh, they didn't? Okay. They thought it was working. So I'm oh, saying to them, no, gotcha. it's not working. I like this 23-year-old street performer. And I say... Sorry, your show's not working. <laughs> okay. And what you need to do is you need to make me the star of the show. <laughs> <laughs> all right. How'd that, how'd that go over? And the show has to be all about me. Mm-hmm. And it has to be how you're looking for a performer and you keep missing me. And it's all about me. You have to do that or your show's going to close. You can just imagine the look on the, kind of a smile look on their face of going, this is all very interesting, but we're going to go forward with our show. (laughs) We don't know what to say, but the director will figure it out. And I'm like, okay, you know, well, I did my best. I'm still going to do it no matter what. So we do it and the critics love me and the show closes the next day. It was that quick? So here's the story. So we do the show, the opening night. It's great for me. You know, I get a fantastic biggest ovation, et cetera. I'm on cloud nine and my family had come to see it because I said, look, you got to come and see the show because I hear it's going to close. I'm out with my family the next day and I say, well, let's go to the Statue of Liberty. And so we go to the Statue of Liberty and then I say, well, I got to get back because we're going to have a show. And I get back at like 2.30 in the afternoon just in time to kind of get ready. And I walk into my apartment and the phone rings. This is I walk in and I pick up the phone and I said, they say, this is Sugar Baby hmm. that brought okay. the show. And I say, okay, that's cool. Hey, love, <laughs> nice to you. Thanks for calling. And I said, they say, well, we're interested in offering you a job in Sugar Baby. And I said, well, that would be great, but I already have a job in Broadway Follies. And I say, no, you don't. That's so close. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how you heard. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I'll take the job. <laughs> All right. One door closes, one door opens. I'll take it. All right. Literally. And that was so unusual that they wrote a big story about that in the New York Times. Now, was this already an existing show that you that you went into? Or was this something just starting out with Mickey Rooney? No, I, it was an existing show. Yeah, Ann Miller, Mickey Rooney. And I had seen the show in San Francisco. And I thought, well, it's a good show. But what it needs, it needs somebody like me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But they had, a, they had Bob, what was his last name? What did he do? He had a dog act, and he he was the guy with the dog that didn't do anything. Mm, I think they had the, I think I remember that. I don't know the name, though, yeah. Yeah, the laconic dog. Mm-hmm. And it was a great act. And then he quit, because he was, he was elderly. He had been on Ed Sullivan and a lot of, we kind of grew up and saw him occasionally. And then they had Chaz Chase. Now, Chaz Chase was even older. He was in the 90s, and he had performed with W.C. Fields. Wow. And so he used to tell me about how irascible W.C. Fields was, that he was not very pleasant. 
Mm. But Chaz Chase had an act of walking around in a circle and getting smaller, mm. which is a great gag. Then he would eat uh, eat things like a cigar. Like George Carl would do that where he just slowly gets smaller and smaller and like in his coat or something. Okay, I know the gag. Right. Yeah. So it's a classic. It's like, you know, what we talk about stock or classic. Mm. Somebody originated it, but right. it's a very, it's like a, you may go all the back to Commedia. I don't know. But yeah, George Carl did that, but Chaz Chase did that. And then he ate things. And, and there's a video um, from like the early Vitaphone videos, uh, moved films, actually, Vitaphone films. Uh, there's a film of Chaz Chase from those early, basically right after silent film days. So I replaced him. Hmm. So that's a pretty, pretty close connection to W.C. Fields. And were you, were you a hit right away in Sugar Babies? It was it a pretty immediate success in that show? I was a huge success immediately. How did Mickey Rooney take that? Because... The rumor I heard is he didn't like people. He liked people to be funny, but not funnier than him. Or was he more generous than that as a you know co-performer? He didn't like it as I went on too long. Right. I, he got a little annoyed if I did really, really, really. I have to be honest. Uh, you know, he would stand behind the stage and say, "I worked my ass off of that <laughs> juggler." Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> He'd be behind the curtain. Years, years later, he came to Arinda where I live. He was uh, at a theater talking about movies, and I came up and said, "Hey, Mickey, I just wanted to say hello." And uh, he said, the only thing he said to me was, where are you working? <laughs> right. Showbiz, right? That's all he said. What's he your gig? Anything about anything else. He just said, right. And he said it like three times. He didn't follow it with who books that gig, did he? He was a genius, Mickey Rooney and Miller Fantastic Talent. There was a lot of talent in that show. So you're in Sugar Babies. Did that lead to your first Tonight Show appearance? When, remember when I was uh, doing The Young Comedians back then? On HBO. Yeah. I was street performing, and, and then I would did the comedy competition, and then I got the young comedians. So when I went to L.A. to do the young comedian. There was a manager who was interested in me, and I'm just you know still just a street performer, and that was just my second TV show. No, actually, I was on the Gong Show. I forgot mm. that was my first TV show. Oh, okay. So I got. I like said 29. I juggled and ate the tomato. As a matter of fact, that'd be some fun footage to see. I've never seen that appearance. I don't have it. Lost to time. Yeah, back in the day with, you know, the unknown comic. So I'm doing the young comedians and this man calls and his name was Fred the Man. Hmm. So Fred the Man said, well, I've never managed a comedian and I'd like to manage you. That's interesting. Uh, who do you manage, Fred? He said, well, I manage Madonna and Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> okay, pretty good company. Yeah. So I'm pretty like, legit okay. guy. All right. And you want to manage me? Okay. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I had a couple of meetings with Fred and the man. And then I came back to LA one time to have a meeting and I said, okay, well, how are we going to do this? And he said, well, I want to do this picture book where you flip through the pictures and it's you in, in animation and then you get juggle and eat the apple. Mm. And I said, okay, that's interesting. He said, I'm going to send it to all the agents. Oh, okay. I said, okay, well, that's cool. And he said, well, it costs around $5,000 create the book. I'm like, okay, well, who pays for that? <laughs> you do. <Right. laughs> 
Okay. Did you still like the idea or? I was like, nah, I don't think so, Fred. <laughs> no, I'm not paying 5000 And we never worked together. So that was that. Oh, oh, okay. Did you have a different manager that helped you get the TV spots or? My dad, again, is talking to me. He's like, okay, well, what are you doing with your life now? He said, wasn't there a manager that was interested in you? I, I said, yeah, Fred the man, but I didn't sign with him. And he said, why? Didn't he manage like Madonna or something? And I was like, yeah, but there's this other manager manager I'm interested in. He manages Woody Allen. Mm, dad right. said, Mike, yeah, you're funny. But you're never going to get Woody Allen's manager. That's just not going to happen. You ought to go back and talk to Fred the Man. I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. So I go to New York and I do the Broadway show, Broadway Follies. And who happens to be in the audience but Woody Allen's manager, Jack Rollins. Mm. And so the show closes. I go into Sugar Babies and I get a call from Jack Rollins. Mm. I'm like, wow, that actually happened. Right. So I go and I end up signing with Jack Rollins, Rollins and Joffe, and they become my managers. And yeah, Jack's legendary uh, yeah. manager at the time. That's the top of the top, yeah. Yeah, well, this is who they had. Was I mean, you know, Dick Cavett. He started with Perry Belafonte, mm. Joan Rivers, and then they ended up, they managed Robin, they managed Dana Carvey for a while, and A. Whitney Brown for a while, and Jim Carrey. This has pretty much had a lot of people. Yeah. They were most famous for producing Woody Allen's movies. So I'm working with them, and they're getting me Saturday Night Live. Right. And so I'm doing Sugar Babies at night and then rehearsing for Saturday Night Live. Then I would do the night show of Sugar Babies, which ended at 10, and then I'd go over to Saturday Night Live and do that show, which started at 11.30. And you made six appearances on Saturday Night Live, is that correct? That is correct. Including one with, with Greg Dean, if I if I am remembering, where you did, the, did your yeah. clown duo. Yeah. We Yeah, we revived. That was probably not the best idea. Did it. <laughs> and you were the only juggler to ever appear on Saturday Night Live, which is quite the honor. Yeah, good, good for juggling. Yeah, very good for juggling. I'm glad to have promoted juggling in that fashion, and juggling has been very good for me. And they also had like Harry Anderson would do bits and other variety acts like Penn and Teller. But I guess that was just kind of a, like a couple of seasons they did that, then they stopped that tradition of having acts. Well, see, there was a different producer, and yeah. it was Dick Ebersall. It wasn't Lauren Michaels. So Dick Ebersall was interested in having me on the show, and I was the first variety act, first show of that yeah. year. So they actually didn't have a host that oh. year of that first show, the first show. It was me, and so some people thought I was the host. Wow, yeah. So I did my act. And after that, they had Penn and Teller, and they had Steve Wright, and they had Harry Anderson. I think we're all guests. Variety. I think Harry Anderson did it. I'm not sure. He did. Steve Wright yeah, did. No, yeah, he was very, I think that started him out in his road to being like, you know, night court and sort of moving away a little bit away from uh, just doing magic, sort of creating his character. Well, now you're making me feel bad. Why is that? <laughs> oh, because of it. <laughs> well, he, took, he, did, he did that gig and got night court. <laughs> you've done okay for yourself michael I, i'm not trying to diminish what you what you've accomplished in any way so any other would, would be happy to help I'm a, I'm a fan of harry i'm a fan of harry oh yeah he yeah he was wonderful actually you may not know this but a whitney brown was hanging around with harry anderson in the early early days and harry was a street performer and a whitney brown was traveling with him and that's how a whitney brown ended up in san francisco right yeah, he was harry the hat i think harry the, harry hat, the hat yeah yep. and a whitney brown was 
kid hanging out with him. And did you have any, like, did you hang out with the Saturday Night Live crew or were you just kind of come in? Were you part of the, the group there or did you feel like you just were someone who came in as, as a one-time or not part of the cast? Well, I got to be friends with a couple people, not Eddie Murphy. We weren't friends, but I got friends, you know, friendly with the other, some, Tim Kazarinski and a couple other people, but I wasn't really part of the cast. And right. I, I had the other gig I was doing every night, so I wasn't there for any of the writer meetings. I never worked my way into the sketches, which I should have tried to do. Right. But I didn't. I'm still, you know, kind of a, I don't know, a little bit of an outsider type. I don't try to, you know, I'm not the great game type. <laughs> but and you'd had uh, improv training, so it seemed like that's something that you could have done. It seems that way. It could have happened. It didn't. That's what, you know, I look back and I say, you know, I probably should have tried a little harder there. But you were featured in a TV series. I mean, you got uh, the news is, is the news. Was that... That was done by Herb Sargent. He was the producer of the news segment on SNL. He spun it off into a half an hour show of just its own show called The News is the News. So it essentially was the news segment expanded. He hired me to do that. So that was my network show experience as a cast member. Unfortunately, it was, it was also a live show unfortunately canceled on the fourth show in the middle of the show. In the middle of the show? In the middle of the show. Because one of the guys decided to do some stupid thing about President Reagan, like President Reagan had been assassinated on a live oh. show. Oh. And so the network called up and stopped the show in the middle of the fourth show. I've never heard of that happening. Wow. Okay. We all lost our jobs. Mm. And I wasn't a fan. I was not a fan of that guy who did that. I because bet. the show was going great for me, again, yeah. and so it got it got abbreviated. Again, it wasn't a great show, and there were some very talented people on that show too. I like some of the stuff I did on that show quite a bit. They were like little political essays. I did one that I really liked about nuclear arms and with the knives, and that ended up getting me a gig on the Smothers Brothers revival show. I remember that piece. Yeah, I remember that piece quite well, actually. Yeah. Yeah. They liked me because it was anti-war, and they liked me. I mean, but when I went on the Smothers Brothers show, again, I did a few spots, and then they said, well, come back and do another thing. So I came back, and I did the guitar piece that I like to do. And kind of in the middle of it, I realized that I was copying Tommy Smothers. Oh. <laughs> Is that the bit where you end with a big tent that you balance, and then the tent falls over you, or was that... Only for the one you did on The Tonight Show. I didn't get all the way to the tent part on The Smothers Brothers. I did that on The Tonight Show. But, and Tommy, he looked at me after the show and he was like, oh. <laughs> mm, we thought you were the juggler, yeah. That was good, but that's a little bit my territory. So I, I didn't ever realize how big an influence Tommy Smothers was on me. And I, I remember it kind of dawning on me at the show that, yeah, I do Tommy Smothers quite a bit. And, of course, I'm a huge fan of Tommy. And we ended up being friends. We ended up playing some golf together. And, nice. But they would always invite me to go in their little room after the show and do what they like to indulge in. Yeah, nice. A little, little after show relaxation. I understand that. At that point, I didn't do that. I never went in with their after show party. Right. Wasn't your thing. Wasn't my thing at that time or now. And what year did you do your first Tonight Show? And what routines did you do? Was that the uh, balls or what was your first spot on the Tonight Show? Probably the knives. I, uh, You know what? I don't know. 
but I did that five times, I think, uh, four or five. They have you in Wikipedia as four, but... but uh... the Four sounds right. <laughs> they kept inviting me back, but I didn't have new material because uh, at that point I was doing so many corporate shows and I wasn't really creating material anymore. It took a long time before I got a piece and that was the guitar tent piece and they kept they had called me a few times and I said you know I really don't have the thing I want to do and I should have just kept repeating stuff as I realize now that you should let people get sick of you yeah I had the piece and they were like great because I had started doing a one-man show and so I had developed a longer piece they said yeah I said well I, I'd love to do this piece but it's like nine minutes and there's no juggling and they said, yeah, we love you. Come back. Come on the show. <laughs> yeah. And so they had booked it for like three months ahead of time. I'm like, okay, you know, you want me to do this nine minute piece and there's no juggling. Okay, fantastic. So I get a call four days before the show from the producer and he's a little bit frantic and he says, no, wait a minute. I have this down in my notes that this is nine minutes and there's no juggling. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. And he said, well, would you mind coming in and doing the piece? I'm like, sure. Okay. Yeah. So I came in and I did it and they were they loved it. And so they were like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, we want it. So then I came back to do the show and they had built this whole set for me. Yeah. You know, which they never do. Like a Western set, yeah. Yeah, the whole Western set. And so I did the piece. I think it was one of the best things I've done. You know, I, I love that piece. And there was a, a famous manager there who actually ended up, after I had left Rollins and Joffe, long story, he, was, he ended up being my manager. Uh, Ken Craig, he said that that was one of the funniest pieces ever, comparing it to Steve Martin. Well, that was a very uh, joke-heavy piece. Did you always write by yourself, or did you write with a team, or was that all basically your material coming right from your mind? I, I always looked for writers, and I never found any. That was the problem. You know, I always had to—I never really had a writing partner, except Greg. So I just had to develop it with the audience, basically. Now, at what point did you start doing the, the famous— a year that you did the famous show for Ronald Reagan that still pops up and it goes viral like every time it comes up. Was that 80 in the, in the 88? What, what year was that that you did that very famous Reagan appearance? That was during Sugar Babies. Okay. I was performing in New York every night, eight shows a week. So I was incredibly honed. Right. Performing for the Broadway audience, you get incredibly honed, and it's an incredible experience. So I think it was 82. Uh, well, it would have been after an election, I guess the off year of an election. So my manager from Rollins yeah. and Joffe, yeah, I was working with specifically with George Manos, and he said, look, you've been invited to perform at Ford Theater for the president, Reagan. And I wasn't a huge fan, and I was kind of hem and hawing, and, and he said, look, you're performing for the president. It's yeah. the president, whatever president it is. So you're doing it for the office of the president. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I agree. So let's do this. That show was at Ford's Theater. Now, they used to do it every two years. And that show had Liza Minnelli and Ben Vereen and the Gatlin brothers and David hmm. Copperfield on that show. Right. David Copperfield was, he had long hair and he was kind of a hippie. And he was okay. He wasn't great. <laughs> you know, he was just okay. And I forget what he did, but it wasn't that impressive. Yeah. But he got a lot better after that. He did okay. Yeah, he did okay for himself, I think. I think he owns his own island, so he's okay. Yeah, he did well. He did very well. We don't have to worry about David Copperfield. He did not steal the show that night. Let's mm. just say that. And I did. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those nights. And again, it was like a really long act. It was like 12 minutes. And no one else did that long in the whole show, as I recall. Not Eliza Vanelli or anybody. 
and it was one of those nights where I had it all together and I didn't miss. And the Secret Service was a little nervous about the knives and they had to check me out and they let me do it. What can I say? Watch this video. I can't say anything more than that was just special. And because of that video, that's when my money-making day, what we call the salad days, happen. Yes. And you had the perfect credentials of when they see the president laughing at what you're doing, not even just laughing, but basically doubling over. That's a pretty good sign of approval. Slapping the knee with the program, I think, <laughs> is the that really sells it. So I started doing just seven or eight corporates a month. That went on for a while, and that was great. But it wasn't as, you know, you know what it's like. It's not where you create material. It's where you cash in. That's the cash in part. Yeah. Cash, it was really a selling of what I had created up to that point. Cashing in. And my plan was coming from never having money to I'm going to get enough money. I don't have to listen to anybody. You know, I don't have to do what anybody says. Yeah. I'm going to have freedom. That's it. How do you feel when your video comes up and basically it always says, we, I don't like jugglers or jugglers suck. But you have to watch this guy. He, he's funny. Do you feel that, you're, that, the, that being a juggler held you back in the overall you know, arc of show business because of, of people's perception of it? I can't really worry about anything holding me back. Whatever. I held myself back. That's it. Period. The funny thing is, you know, I have two sons. And as they grew up, they're, of course, you know, involved in this Internet society. And they're on Reddit. Like, I remember the first time, it was about 10 years ago, that my young son burst into my room, Dad, you're <laughs> on the front page of Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's happened like three, four times over the years. And, I, and the other day I say, you know, the funny thing is, I'm the only guy on the internet that they don't say bad things about. <laughs> Literally. Your son Harry is starting his own career in show business as a playwright and actor. Are you encouraging him? Do you feel that show business is still a very vital career? And, and do, you, do you feel good about him getting into that? And is that something you, you're very proud of, that he's in, now following in your footsteps in his, in his own way? I'm a total supporter. complete and utter supporter of Harry doing what he's doing. He is very talented. He has some of the strains of, of my talent and other talents. And he does Shakespeare really well. He's a playwright. He's written three, four pieces. They're good. They're funny. He's at Santa Barbara and his teachers love him. He's great. We had to talk him into going for it. He was reluctant because he realizes insecurity. And that's something that's hard for him is the, the lack of any type of security of getting a credential that you hang on your wall and you say, I'm this. And as I get older, I'm just more of this. Right. I'm more of a doctor. I'm more of a lawyer. I'm more of an accountant. I'm a more of a therapist. But it's yeah. never really, I'm more of an actor. It, it's not the same. You never get that. Harry, was when he was a little kid, he said, well, I want a job where I say to my the person in my office, how's my Thursday looking? <laughs> oh, what an awful idea, huh? <laughs> that's, 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 that's the kind of security I want. And I, so you can imagine we had to talk him into uh, showbiz. He's in high school, and he, he won't do it for a long time. He won't do acting. So finally he does it, and his acting teacher, and she says, I just really got to say to you guys, I really think Harry's talented. And he, we live in like, Orinda, which is 95% yeah. of people here have college degrees. I don't. And she says, I just want to say it would be really great if Harry could pursue acting. And we both, my wife and I, we said, you know what? We're trying to talk him into it. And she said, 
that is so weird. I never hear that. Here. <laughs> well, since you were in the business, maybe he kind of rebelled by going the other direction because just you always want to do something different than your parents, I guess. I don't know that that's it. I think it was just the security. We did say, Harry, go for it. Don't worry. You can do that later if it doesn't work out. Try it for five years. But he's got a lot of support. And I said, well, you could at least learn some variety skill. <laughs> you know, that maybe right. would be a good idea. So he's really good at hula hooping, actually. Oh. He doesn't juggle much. He juggles a little. And I, you know, I was thinking, I bought a ventriloquist dummy the other day. I thought, well, maybe you could just play around with that because you can make a living somehow learn a magic trick he's writing and he's doing really well that reminds me of ron lucas on your special back in the hbo days and you, you had a whole party theme and yeah well, what happened with ron was that when i was in sugar babies i was getting these offers to do these gigs for like a lot of money but i couldn't do them right and so i said well we figured it out that if i was doing two spots in the show and if i gave up one of the spots to Ron, he'd be in the show. Yeah, who's a fantastic ventriloquist, Ron Lucas, yeah. Fantastic. And so that if one of us had to leave and do a gig, the other could cover. Oh, okay. And do both spots, yeah. So And do both spots. Now, when I did the two spots, oh, I got way bigger of a reaction. I never should have done that thing with Ron. <laughs> Although I made a lot of because of it, but uh, we ended up doing that. So we were in the show together. I guess it was a stronger show with both of us in it together, but maybe not because the audience always wants to see a star. Right. As two good things that want to see a star. So it kind of made me more of a star when I did the two spots. I was a little bit nervous because, you know, I didn't know this show was going to end. I'm be back on the street. So and I got these gigs and you know, suddenly I'm getting offered $5,000 and I'm like, well, wait a minute. I need to do that. Yeah. And like I can. say, I saw the light at the end of the tunnel with the momentum that I had in doing gigs, I said, this is going to work out. I'm going to get financial independence from this. And so I said, I'm just going to do it. You know, and, and I had other opportunities that I didn't do. And in some ways, I more artistic would have just been stay in New York, just audition for shows. I mean, I did try. I one time stopped performing for two years and just did class, acting mm. class. And it was interesting because at the end of the two years, the acting teacher, Bill Esper, again, I got the name, said, you know what? It never really worked out. And I said, yeah, it never did. He said, I thought you were going to be great. I said, I thought I was too. <laughs> he said, you have so many ideas. Well, you should be a director because you always have an idea of how to make it work. And I said, yeah, maybe I should. And I left New York for eight years and moved to the country. <laughs> but you did end up in a show where you did a lot of acting, which was uh, Teatro Zanzani. I saw you several times in that show, and you had a through line, you had a character, and you were able to use your uh, more than just your juggling act, because it was a three-hour show or four-hour show, and you were throughout the entire thing. Did you enjoy that experience? Well, what happened was I ended the acting class. It never really worked out. I auditioned for a couple things. I didn't get them, and I said, okay, I've got the financial independence. I'm just going to move, and I'm going to start a family in a small fishing village in Washington. So after a while, eight years, we said, well, we've really got to move back so our kids can go to a better school, move back to the Bay Area. And I thought, you know, I'm not really doing anything. It would be nice to be part of a small circus or something. I should just go back to clowning and, and do something. And I wasn't juggling very much. I didn't practice anymore. There was this show in San Francisco I had never gone to see because it was really expensive. It was $150 a ticket. And I'm like, I'm not paying that. <laughs> so finally I had a friend and he said, well, you know, they might be auditioning. So I, they had this cabaret show 
after the show one night. And I said, I'll go be part of that. So I went and did something for the cabaret show. And the producer was there and he said, well, we want to hire you for the show. And I thought, okay, well, that works because I'm in San Francisco and this is a small circus. But I hadn't performed very much in years. I said, well, this is going to be a challenge. And I got into the show. It's very, very talented people. Teatro Zanzani, fantastic company. One Reel with the producers. They, there was a lot of creativity. So I'm in the show the first year and with a bunch of new people for the show. And one of them was Lillian Montevecchi. She's a movie star and a fantastic talent, singer. She's French. She was in movies with Elvis Presley, Marlon Brando. She's the, the female lead. And I had seen the show uh, and the character of the chef is the one that they wanted me for. Now, I had seen the show with this great actor named Kevin Kent, who is, a, is that character. How do you, And they said, well, sometimes he's not in the show. I say, there's no show without him. He's the show. He, he dominates. And I, they say, well, we want you to do it. And I'm like, <laughs> how do I do this? I don't know how I do this. And they said, well, you got the job if you want it. And I'm mm. like, okay, I'll do it. No, I didn't know what the hell, how to do this. And you're going to play a chef. So I said, okay. Well, I'm sitting, I'm thinking, how am I going to do this and what am I going to do? And I'm sitting at a table and I'm thinking, what's my name? So I come up with the name Tad Overdone. You know? Yeah, clever. The Lonely Chef. (laughs) So I I say, that's my character. I know I'm going to have a relationship with the audience. I know that. I know I'm going to listen to them and I'm going to know what they're thinking because that's my gift. And so I go and I start doing this and I start writing this routine about and the character picks people out of the audience and plays with them, which is not something I did a lot. Right. And I always have a lot of judgment about that because it can be a kind of a gimmick and kind of a trick and kind of a pain in the ass, if you ask me. Sure. You have to do it well. And Kevin did it well, and I started to do it well. And I learned about how I thought, oh, it would be funny if I get a woman to throw water in my face. Mm. <laughs> and so I wrote a routine. Where I get a woman and I, and I say, you know, we were lovers and, and then I, I left you and you always wanted to press yourself to me and your pain. And I would give her this glass of water and I would keep <laughs> trying to get her to throw it in my face. You know, it was just my idea that I thought it would be funny. It ended up being kind of embarrassing because sometimes the women were young. And I had this line I'd say, and you would call me by a pet name. And I remember this one time this lady said, Daddy, (laughs) it was really embarrassing. And I said, I can't do this routine anymore. And so I had morphed that and I kept changing it. And see, that one thing that I I do is I start with a routine and I change it. And every night after every show, I'd be in the dressing room writing all these notes. And the other actors are like, what are you doing? Mm. You were fine. And I'm like, no, no, I got to fix this. And they're like, wow, you do that after every show? And I'm like, yeah, I got to make it better. And so I kept making it better. And the first year was not that good. It was okay. I mean, I, I survived. I succeeded. Right. The, the audience didn't love me. Yeah. And at the end of the show, though, they wanted to keep me. And so I actually went from three months to the next three months. And I got a lot better the next three months. And I got better and I got better. And finally, I was really enjoying what I was doing. And I'm very proud that after having created the whole thing earlier, and it was a different character, it was not the same character, Yeah. Um, that I had really changed it, and I was tad overdone The Lonely Chef, and it was a completely different thing, and it was just as successful. Let me ask you a question about routining, because you said something very important about taking notes after your shows to make them better. 
Because I saw you do the, I don't know when you started, but you did the routine with the chicken breast, the ball of, of bread, and the butter. And I remember afterwards, and the, and the routine had to go on for a good 10 minutes or so. Yeah. I remember thinking, he knows how to wring every ounce of comedy out of a situation. I mean, it wasn't like laughter here, laughter here. It's a wave of laughter ending with this huge yeah. response at the end. Can you give us a couple of more tips about how you would get the most comedy or, or the most effectiveness out of a juggling routine? So that routine started with one I had done earlier in my one-man show, and it was food juggling. That was a natural when I was doing The Chef because I was always into doing juggling with objects that weren't for juggling. Yeah. And I think I started when I had an idea for the food group. Yeah, the basic food groups. I did that on Letterman, actually. It evolved and evolved and evolved, this idea of food groups. So one food group was the bread. One food group was the dairy. And that ended up being margarine. I think I started with butter. And then one group was the meat. And I did it in, in London with an octopus. <laughs> okay. And I did it at one point. I think the earliest thing was liver. Oof. It evolved into a chicken. And it wasn't just a chicken breast. It was a whole raw. Okay, a whole raw chicken. Yeah. Yeah. Get the smallest chickens and it was like a pound and three quarters. So the challenge is I get somebody from the audience and I, who can juggle. So I had to get someone who can juggle and then say, look, you can juggle. But if you just take these simple food groups, you can do an amazing act. And so I have this relationship and I have an action that I'm doing. I'm teaching this person. So how to build comedy with that? Comedy comes from tension, the release of tension and expectation and surprise and choices that you make that are funny. <laughs> okay. Right. So you have to combine all of those elements and you have to have honesty. And you have to have relationship. When I bring in, when I bring the person, how I meet them creates a dynamic. Is there a thing where you can say what's funny and isn't funny? I, I don't know how to define that, you know, other than it is and it isn't funny. Right. The audience will tell you. Yeah. Exactly. You listen to the audience and you make funny choices and through the process of elimination, you try to eliminate everything that isn't funny and you try to keep everything that is funny. And you try to organize that in a way that it then makes sense. So you see a young artist and it's a young Matisse and you see Matisse at the end where it's like three brushstrokes and that's right. it. So that's what you do. And you have to pay attention and you have to take advantage of, I heard a laugh. Why did I hear a laugh? What's funny about that? And analyze it, figure it out. But there's a tremendous amount of integrity that's needed when you have the relationship with the person. And the idea of bringing the person out of the audience is to make them the hero. Right, you can't just treat them like a prop or something. You have to, you have to respect their, their humanity. They're the star, you are the enabler. You have to make them know where they are in the story. And you have to give them challenges and hope that they'll do it. If you don't give them a good challenge, it's no fun. Again, yeah. it's that leaping across the chasm thing. If I don't give the man an oppor a woman or whatever an opportunity to succeed, give them a challenge, then they can't succeed. I have to give them that opportunity to succeed, which is mean to take their choice to go for it. And I would do like with the bread, I'd treat it like cigar boxes and do a clap. And I wouldn't say anything more than that. If I say more than that, it ruins it. Yeah, It's the absolute minimum of what I can say that the whole audience gets it and they get it. And sometimes I have to allow that they're going to do something that I can't do. And that would happen. So it's a lot of allowing and a lot of trust 
And yeah, that bit at its longest was like 13 minutes. And it's only juggling at the very end. Yeah, that might be where some other jugglers drop the ball. It's like, hand me that prop or just something very mm-hmm. inconsequential that even if they can do it, they're, like I say, they're just a glorified assistant at that point. Right. How can you fail at handing a prop? And <laughs> then they make them fail somehow. Then the audience is like, there was no challenge there. Or you just made them fail. Or, you know, like the classic unicycle holding the guy on the head. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There just needs to be a different way of doing it. Well, like you said, there's an integrity, the way you treat them. They have to be the hero. I'm never a big one for, let me dress you up in funny clothes and put a silly outfit on you so you can dance around and be foolish. I've never been a big one for that. Well, it could be, because, but you have to give them the option of putting on the clothes or not. (laughs) Right, right. We have to see who that person is through their choice. Right. Not just, like you say, if they're a mannequin, what's interesting? I want somebody to know something about that person at the end of it. And what was amazing about that show, the momentum that that show created was at the end of that routine, I have somebody hit themselves in the head with (laughs) at least a pound of margarine. And they come to the show dressed up. They don't know what they're doing. They're wearing a little lab coat, but they're hitting themselves on the head with a pound of margarine at a fancy show in front of everybody. And there were stretches for like every show for two months, the man did it. There's always, actually I did it with women too. Every once in a while. It worked great. Occasionally when I had a female do it, I had some of the best shows, but typically it was a man. Actually all of the women who ever got up did it. I I have to say there was a man who didn't do it because it was a religious thing. Uh, he, He wouldn't do it. Right. There were people who didn't like it because it was a waste of food. Sometimes they were Europeans who had been through World War II. They didn't like it. In fact, when I tried to do that in Germany, they didn't like it. They mm. didn't want it. Interesting. They said, no, we can't waste food that way. I would always say, hey, I eat the chickens after the show. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've t- I've taken a lot of your time, Michael. You've had so many other highlights we didn't mention, your Royal Variety performance, the fact that you performed at the G7 Summit. So many amazing highlights. So many people you got to work with. Do you mind if we end with one more show business story? There was a, a performer I never got a chance to work with, but you got to work with Frank Sinatra. Do you have any uh, story you can end with, yep. uh, with your experience with Frank Sinatra? After I had done Ford's Theater for President Reagan, Nancy Davis was actually her, her maiden name. Her maiden name. Became a big fan of mine. She invited me to several functions at the White House, and one of the functions was the gala after the election of Reagan, so the presidential gala. So I performed at that, and Frank Sinatra was the director of the mm. show. He liked me. Yeah. He, you're good. I like you. It was a big deal, of course, doing that show. I performed for Reagan, and I performed for Bush, George Bush, of course. And there were very different audiences, because George Bush was very much from Texas. Yeah. And his supporters were from Texas, so the party was from Texas. But with Reagan, it was showbiz. Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and Don Rickles and Ray Charles and uh, Rich Little, I think it was. I mean, it was, it was kind of a showbiz crowd. Right. So I'm pretty nervous that day, and I don't eat before the show. So we do the show, and I do pretty good. It was good. I don't think it was my favorite performance. It was a little bit odd, but it was good. I'm hanging out with all these show business people after the show at a party, and I'm sitting at a table with Frank Sinatra and Tom Selleck and, and Don Rickles and all these people. At that time, I drank. I haven't, I haven't in 20 years, but I was drinking scotch, and I got a little bit tipsy quite a bit, and they were laughing at me because I was drunk at the mm. table. 
and they thought that was amusing. Frank's being friendly, and and you know he's 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 the head of the table, definitely. And all I can remember is I got up at one point, and he got up, and we were standing together, and I said, you know what? I think you're a really nice guy. When I was a kid, I thought you were an asshole. <laughs> and how do you take that? <laughs> he looked at me like I can't believe this guy. It's kind of like that same look that I got from Lansbury Baru when I told him their show was going to close. But he he, he kind of chuckled, and then I started getting calls from him to open for him in Las Vegas. That was cool. I liked that a lot because I would get the call on like a Wednesday. This Friday, we're in Vegas. I wasn't doing that much at that time, and so usually I was free pretty much all the time. So I would go and do these gigs, and he was great. He was fantastic performer, big fan. I never was as free talking to him again <laughs> yeah the liquid uh, lubrication of the whiskey to give you some courage huh? yeah i didn't have that freedom anymore but we hung out one time we all had we had dinner and he, when he had dinner in the casino he would have it in the kitchen they just bring a table into the kitchen so he didn't eat in the restaurant yeah so we sat in the kitchen and ate dinner and he told me stories about performing at the uh, copacabana in new york and then one time we all went out together to see his son, Frank Sinatra Jr. So, yeah, we did some stuff and we went to Hawaii and performed in a big stadium. It was a great experience. Well, I hope you had a good experience on the Drop Everything podcast. Uh, it's a nice way to wrap it up, I think. I want to thank you for all your time and, of course, for all the inspiration you've given to me and all the other comedy jugglers. And I want to thank the lovely Jane Martin for helping to set up this interview and for uh, being such a wonderful person. Of course, that's your, your lovely wife. And once again... A big thank you to Mr. Michael Davis. Okay, thank you to the IJA for giving me the Lifetime Achievement Award. And Dan, you were re very much responsible for suggesting that, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Michael, and uh, best wishes to you in this time. I know a lot of our performing friends are having difficulty because of the situation not being able to perform. So I wish you and your family the best. I'm, I want to follow Harry's career and uh, see where he goes in the world of show business. Thank you one more time for the godfather of comedy juggling, Mr. Michael Davis. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 82, my conversation with Mr. Michael Davis. Thank you, Michael, for doing the podcast and all you've done for juggling. Let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Find out about the IJA by going to juggle.org. Let's give a shout-out to Greg Dean, the great comedy coach and teacher from Los Angeles. He's now taking his classes online. So if you're interested in studying with Greg, go to StandUpComedy.com. That's Stand-UpComedy.com. For all your juggling art needs, go to Jocolaire.com. That's J-O-C-U-L-A-R-E, Jocolaire.com, for wonderful juggling t-shirts and posters. Now, go out there and drop everything, except when you're juggling.